Welcome to episode 602 of I Am Talk, your weekly fix in all things Iron Man. Radio right team, welcome along to episode 602 of I Am Talk with Coach John Newsom and Bevan James Oz. How you going, mate? Pretty good. And yourself? Pretty good as well. I felt a little bit sorry for John this morning because um, normally we, we record at 8.30. I turn up ballpark 8.30. Ballpark. 8.35 at best. Yeah. And so I normally teach at the gym, come home, have a shower. But today we have, we've got an interview on the show. We've got Corey on the show. And so we had to do it at 8. And so I came home from the gym, straight from the gym. And a little bit smelly. Mm-hmm. Was it too bad for you? I have not noticed. That's good. That was, I was slightly stressed. Yes. And then there was a little blowfly. Did you see the blowfly? Saw the blowfly. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit frustrated. I it on my head a couple of times. But I killed it for you. Anyway, Iron Talk is proudly brought to you by Extreme Endurance. Your lactic buffer. And our patron. name of you, Jombo. Joe, the mighty Ray Harwood. We've got Mike. Mm, Mike. Mm, Man of many faces. Oh, you got I know. May of many faces. Yep. Man of many faces, Thomas. And Martin Wally Waite. Why Wally, I wonder. I've got no idea. Why Wally? Why Wally? In this week's show, we've got some news. We've got a discussion of the week. We've got a statistic. It's actually a statistic around our interview. And we've got a great interview with who, Jombo? Craig Alexander. The legend of the sports. Good long interview. We took to him for nearly 50 minutes and uh, kind of cover many interesting topics. So you'll enjoy that. And then we've got some winger of the week and questions and answers at the end. Jombo, the news. We had the Israel man at the weekend. Israel rookie Diego Van Hoy, Van Loy of Belgium rode to victory in the half iron distance, but we were more focused on the full distance race. And we had uh, Till Schram take out the race. His times were he did a 9.39.20. So he swam 52. He rode a 5.33 on an incredibly tough course and ran a 3.08.07 to win by two. It's a dojo domination, Bevan. Oh, really? 20 minutes and two seconds over David Yillick from the Czech Republic. And good old Hal Tao was there in third place in 10.02. And then last year's winner, Dan Altman, was in fifth. On the girls' side of things, you had Antonio Benazikov um, from Israel take it out 10.50. Also a dojo domination, taking out Simona Krivia. Kriv Ankova from the Czech Republic in 11 hours 13 and Carmen Michetov <laughs> You're doing well. You're doing well, mate. In 19 So a bit of a few Czech athletes down there, a few Germans, a few Poms, people from everywhere. So nice work. They had the full and the half and they had uh, numbers, I think were record numbers up there, which is good to see. I actually, with Joe and I are watching on Netflix, there's a guy called Phil Rosenhole. Rosenhole, something like that. He does a food show. Um, do, you have, do you have Netflix? Have I heard of Netflix? No, have you got Netflix? <laughs> yes, I have heard of Netflix, and yes, I do have Netflix. Do you like food programs? Um, I don't mind, but I don't watch them, but I don't mind. Joe loves the food programs, and and we watch this. He's a guy who came up, do you remember the program Everyone Loves Raymond? Vaguely. Yeah, I didn't really watch it, but he was the guy who kind of produced that program, and he's in this food show. It's really cool. He goes into different countries, and he's just a very passionate person. He's quite interesting to watch, but he did one on Israel. Pretty fascinating. It was pretty cool. Mm, nice. You know, like 
It'd be an interesting place to go to. So maybe next year, if you want to, you could do that race. John, we had South Africa 70.3. We did indeed. So, uh, Matt, we've, we've talked about some athletes have been coming back from um, fairly horrific injuries in terms of, you know, Tim Don we talked about either last week or the week before, and also Matt Russell had a bad crash. Good to see Matt Trotman, who also has come back from a really bad crash, uh, taking that out and, and a 409. And then on the girls' side of things, I thought you said you killed that fly. It was a mozzie before. Go, I'm going to get fly spray. And uh, I don't know, just fly spray, I'll gag. Oh, um, Joe doesn't like fly spray either. No. But it uh, kills him. Yeah, but it we just about kills us as well. Ah. Uh, and on the girls' side, I think it's Janine Seymour from South Africa took it out in 422. <laughs> when, when I use fly spray, I'll literally use a whole can on yeah, the Yeah, no, no. I'd rather the little bugger climbs all over me. <laughs> Even if it's been in shit before, yeah? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there we go. Uh, and Haig? And Haug. Yeah, so I... Just I don't actually know who she is, John. Well, that's why we've got this little segment okay. in there. I saw a little clip. She's doing Iron Man this year. And if you don't know much about her... I don't. She was uh, around sort of 2013, 2012. She was crushing it on the ITU circuit. Just She won like the grand final in Auckland, just win, you know, winning or podium pretty much every race she'd go to uh, sort of for a period and then really fell off the, the wagon a little bit. Her swim was always relatively weak. Um, and, but in that period, um, so 2012, 2013, she was able to get through that and uh, and was just crushing it. So last year... Um, she didn't race all in ITU. There's no results. No, no, she didn't race ITU. But last year she went to Bahrain and uh, she finished second there. She ran a 117. Wow. And that was when it was a quality field. She finished second behind Holly Lawrence. Uh, beating Daniela Reef, who faded on the, the run, but it was a highly quality field. So it's going to be interesting to see if she brings a different dynamic to the racing with her Ironman. Her bike is not as her strength nor as her swim. She is a weapon on the run, um, but it'll be interesting to see if a former ITU athlete can sort of make that step up. So look out for her in uh, 2018. It's an interesting career. We're talking to Crowley later on in the show, and <clears throat> the one thing he talks about is that kind of being a consistent winner, you know, not just having a moment in the sun. Mm. And it must be interesting for someone like, you know, like Anne, who had a moment where it was a dominant athlete, mm. but a very short moment. Yeah, exactly. You know, and then after that, if you look at her results from 2015, you know, 2014, well, tw yeah, 2014, she only raced a couple of times, this is ITU only. And then after that, she's kind of, you know, a couple of podiums at best. And this is, this is probably going to come across as a sexist comment, um, but we see it quite often with the females at ITU distance. Which is interesting because in Ironman it's contrasting. Because mm. in Ironman you often get a female who will dominate a long period of time. Mm. But we're sure, of course, we've had a number of examples like Anne Haug, um, like the, a couple of the Canadian girls, uh, Sweetman and uh, Paula Finlay. They've come and gone, and, and I think often it's injury-related. Yeah. But um, they have had short periods, but really dominating periods where you're like, they're just about unbeatable. And then, um, then they're gone. Because it is funny when you look at Ironman, you know, and on Ironman with females, you tend to have one woman who's going to dominate for four or five years. Mm -hmm. You know, if we look at the history of the results, sure, you get the odd winner. Mm -hmm. But generally speaking, you know, you've got Daniela right now, you had Rennie for a period, you had Chrissy, mm -hmm. you know, it, it always, and then there was um, Batman, you know, like it's really interesting. Ironman does seem to be, whereas on the men, you might get couple guys who win two or three at max, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but it's a bit more mixed up. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Okay, Brownlee, Alistair Brownlee's entered the 72.7.3 in Dubai. So it's coming up very shortly. Is that the one he did last year? Uh, no, he, uh, I can't actually remember. No, he did a 
I'm not quite sure. Okay. But anyway, it's just going to be interesting to see that he is racing some middle to long course races. He is also down to race Commonwealth Games. So just going to be intrigued to see what his season looks like. Well, how fit is he? Mm. That's a big question. Also, Challenge Rote has changed its run course to one loop course. Obviously, they got some feedback. And it was interesting in the PR release we got with kind of saying there's definitely not as much climbing. Yeah, so last year they changed it to be a two-lap course. Which I thought was quite cool. It was. I did not think it was that cool on the second (laughs) lap when I was going up that bloody hill. Look, it wasn't a ridiculously hard course, but it was certainly a course that hurt a lot more than what the previous one did in terms of the elevation change. So they've gone back to having a lot more of the course one loop, which I kind of, it's one loop, one yeah, you only do everything once, not really a loop. But um, you still get good, really good spectator interaction and you're spending a lot more time down at the canal and so that's flat. It's also on a, on hard-packed shingle. So I think we're going to see a move back to faster run times because it was certainly the run times were significantly slow this year. It was also very hot. I'm oh, sorry, last year. It was also hot, but I think it's a, I think it's a good move. What do you think they'll lose by doing that? Because the crowd spectacle, because I imagine in the rest last year, you had crowds pretty much the whole race? You, you did. In the run? But the, you know, on the downside of that, with two lap runs, for, for people like myself, you know, you're passing a lot of people on the run. And so by having okay. a one loop run, you're not going to be having to, to chug, chug three people. And that's, I find that really difficult when you're in that extreme fatigue yeah. and you're having to dodge people that are going significantly slower than you uh, and you're just not very stable on your feet. And it can, you know. Well, it's also it's an energy, the isn't it? There's an energy of navigating or even telling people you're coming through mm. you know it's there's something that comes with that okay um john what the hell is going on there's a there's good news from last week's what the hell there is i was right as always as always uh what do you do with your phone uh what's it we're meant to be the leaders in this industry john okay so um ian wood has got his wetsuit back he lost his wetsuit and took somebody else's wetsuit home at the, at the weekend <sighs> from the course classic race he came home with a uh, blue 70 wetsuit and it was a female's. That's not very good anymore. to get that sorted out. Anyway, last week we had discussed and not named the person who had been implicated in a uh, adverse finding that would come out from uh, some hackers, some Russian hackers. I intentionally don't mention his name. And now he had, that person has been cleared and it really... Uh, uh, it validates exactly what I said last night, last week, is that he's essentially been tarnished now for something that he has not been, been guilty proven. of. Yeah, okay. So it really annoys me. So the rest of you media that did all promote that story as if this guy was going down, I'm disappointed in you. I'm not angry. I'm just disappointed. Yes. There we go. John Sponsor. Extreme. It's, 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 you know what it is, John? Yes. Just like the buffer. It is your lactic. Yeah, it is. It can also be a fantastic fuel source. They've got Fuel 5. So if you're currently going through maybe your summer or you're getting ready for your next season, you've been thinking, I need to just change up my strategy, my uh, fueling on the bike. I'm sick of uh, the stuff that I've been having. I want to go down a different avenue. can't be like that sometimes. You just Absolutely. get sick of something. Eh? Yeah. Fuel 5 is a cutting-edge energy carbohydrate formula made up of five different forms of fuel from four different types of carbohydrate plus lactate. It's got or a blend of organic sweet potato, multidextrin, dextrose, lactate, and sucrose. is designed to give the body its preferred substrate to promote glycogen synthesis. So it is a little bit different to your standard sports drinks. Uh, so if you want to just 
change it up a bit. They've got a beautiful berry blend flavor. It uh, doesn't taste as sugary as other sports drinks, so I really enjoy taking it in. So check it out, xendurance.com. Look for Fuel 5, and remember the promo code IMTALK20, and they also have the Fuel 5 Plus, which has got caffeine in it as well. So check, check, check it out at xendurance.com. <coughs> okay, guys. Um, last week's discussion. Last week's discussion was actually a pretty cool, and we got some good responses here. So the discussion was, this week we have a simple statement that we want you to finish in a triathlon-related way, but it can cover any area. Here we go. Whatever happened to dot, dot, dot. And Richard Twaney and I come along. I saw a photo of him after a hard run. Uh, a, the game-changing nighttime at Challenge Bahrain race. Well, it's still going. It's a 70.3 bar rain, but it certainly doesn't have the, the money uh, associated with it that it used to. Is that a nighttime race? Uh, oh, sorry, it's, I don't know. It's not a nighttime race any longer, but it's still a 70.3. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It just needed, to, it needed momentum. It needed to carry on for it to it did bring a very, very strong field. And it was a good race, um, but you know, it happened for one year. Mm. So okay. I moved on. Your next one, John? I'm just waiting for it to load up, so you do another. Okay, Arnold Selikov, the clean protocol. I actually had a look at that before because I saw that comment. So we interviewed those guys in Kona. Kona, And it's a really interesting concept what they were doing. So essentially it was kind of a badge of honour to a degree that you'd say I'm a clean athlete. And the things that you needed to do were you you needed to be publishing your um, drug testing results um, to to prove that you weren't on anything. There was also quite a bit of psychometric testing that they were doing because of certain traits that they had established. You're a liar. Yeah, and, and this was done by some very, very smart people uh, and, and and it was research backed it wasn't just their opinions or anything like that um, and I had a look on there and there wasn't really any posts on Facebook or anything since I think it was 2006 or something like that so I think it's kind of I think actually, an interview killed it yeah think, yeah, <laughs> yeah it's probably about when we did the interview so it was a shame because it did seem like a good concept okay um, you got one are you loaded I am loaded I am loaded how tow drug free racing um <laughs> Kefren Izzard racing for shits and giggles. Alison O'Ryan's got the ability to train without the need to post all the details and photos on Strava and social media, etc. And they've got a lot of likes. You've got 18 likes. <laughs> so there you go. Um, Adam Flipper-Philby, whatever happened to Alistair Brownlee's Super League t-shirt? Oh, yeah. I've got the picture there of everybody else wearing their Super League t-shirts. He got a lot of crap for that, didn't he? he's wearing his white uh, Adidas t-shirt and Karma came and bit him in the bum on that one because he, he was poor, miserably. wasn't he? Uh, Daniel Clark's got... Uh, BSX Insight. It's a calf sleeve that is supposed to accurately measure the lactic threshold. It came out a couple of years ago, and at the time it seemed like it would be something everyone would buy, but I haven't heard anything since. I've never even heard of it. I've heard of it. I never tried it. Mm. Um, Mike Canning, Grip Shift. If you don't know what these are, what they used to be is... They, they, they used to be on mountain bikes, didn't they? Yeah, it was kind of like that, but it was on the end of your aero bars, so you kind of be twisting on the end of your aero bars instead of uh, having any levers or anything like that. So it was kind of... Yeah, it was. Was before, it good? Uh, I never had it, so it was kind of probably. It was before bar end shifters. So also Scott DH bars. They were like your clip on aero bars. Tinley vests. They were they were old. So that was what was the Tinley vest? Well, they were some of the first try vests that came out. They were kind of like a running vest, kind of meshy. But the Tinley style was always these really fluoro down the side. And well, what happened to the boob tube for men? Because the boob tube for men, like when you're fit, now it's a fine line. Mm. But if you're a fit pro athlete and the boob tube for men, that was a good look. I'm going to disagree on that one. Oh, I reckon it was. Because a young fit body, 
you know, look, mm. you know, like show, you know, you're telling the sport. Girls like looking at young fit bodies. One other one with Mike Canning, he <coughs> said, um, and where did Kenny Souza go? We'll go. We did interviewed Kenny Souza on Legends. Legends of Triathlon, so go back and listen to that one. Lynette Wan's got um, races that aren't greedy for money, so they kept the race entries. Oh, never mind. I can answer that. The tri- X Tri Series, no drafting issues with less injuries. Um, what is the one that I'm looking for? You go for one. Jason Reed's got triathlon clubs that aren't businesses masquerading as clubs. That was the one that I was looking for. Well <laughs> done, go. good find. I, that, I read your mind. That is kind of a changing. That is the way the sport's going, but it, isn't it? It is. So I think the days of the traditional club, as far as we can see from from our experience, and this might be different in different parts of the world, but in terms of the clubs where it's you know ten bucks to enter um, and join, and five bucks, and everybody pitches in. May still happen in some parts of the world. I think the Great Britain are quite good at that, but it's kind of uh, changing the guard. And for better or worse, it is um, it's happening. I think for better. Mm. And you know why? Because there was an article on stuff a couple of weeks ago saying running clubs are dying. Mm-hmm. And and so if running clubs are dying, and and I'm 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 what Jason's giving a hard time here because I've got a running business which people pay for. It's you know, and so um, we don't necessarily say we're a club. Mm-hmm. But we are. I suppose in the theory we are. But a lot of a lot of coaching organisations are now affiliated clubs, essentially, and the, and people can race at events so we don't under that, that brand. But yeah, you, you, but we could. could be. Yeah, but well, well, I, we are a club, I suppose. Um, but we we're all in Christchurch. We're the biggest running club, I imagine. Mm. You know, and so. Um, uh, well, it's just really interesting, you know. Like we we can provide a service because people pay, and I don't mm. think you know people are time poor now, mm. so people can't you know like people in the the clubs that don't have the money are really struggling because it's the same three people who do everything. So I don't know. It's an interesting discussion. John, cool. um, that's all I've got. Oh no, I've got a really good one here. Jeff Curry's. Whatever happened to John's sixteen minute five k? I'll be lucky if I do two k in sixteen minutes at the moment. Whatever happened? I have a really good one actually. But um, any other quick ones here? Soft rides. They made a bit of a comeback, didn't they? They kind of are. So you know, you I know that the 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 Cervelo, whatever the version, the new Cervelo is, wouldn't call it a soft ride, but it's certainly a suspension bike. And the same with the the Diamond bikes, you know. So they're not exactly soft rides, but same same uh, suspension. With Here's a good one. Andy Heath's got whatever happened to the IM Talk regulars? Gordo. Well, Gordo, he's changed because I saw a post of his on Facebook the other day talking about how he's trying to stop drinking. <laughs> so life's changed a little bit. <laughs> he's been drinking a bit too much beer. I don't think he's an alky. No, M- Gordo, Gordo's extreme in whatever he does. So yep. he was extreme in venture capital for for ten years, extreme in triathlon for ten years, and now he's extreme on being a you know super dad. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Melina, we still get Melina on M. We haven't heard her on for a M's, long time. M's still plugging away with the M's Power Cookies, but she lives on the West Coast now. So we used to have her on more regularly when she was Christchurch based. So she is still uh, she's still out there cranking it. Is uh, she still racing? No, no, not racing, but she's, she always keeps fit. Yep. And then uh, Albert Boyce. Albert Boyce. He's I've still running Boston Marathon most years. Yep. And sort of moved away from triathlon for a variety of reasons. Um, but he's still he's still plugging away. He, um, he's got a really good Instagram account. Nice. Yeah, no, he does text. Like, has really cool photos. Yeah. Yeah, so if you like that. Um, any others here quickly? Uh, Melbourne, I'm in Melbourne. Training clean. Briefs. What are briefs? Now this week, Bevan, you can choose to veto this. This just came no, out. No, no. What, what's your your answer? Whatever happened to? I've got a really good one for you. You, you go because I've got to think. The I am talk cookbook. The I am talk cookbook. Because we've got a few recipes for that, did we? We have got a few. A lot of them were sweet kind of recipes and stuff. 
Now, maybe change. Jonathan's genius about, idea. I know what we'll do. Is we'll that do was not a genius cook. idea. That was a stupid idea. <laughs> so because John, there's not many cookbooks out there in the market, is there? <laughs> <laughs> and so we started getting, all you guys started sending in all these recipes and photos. One of the problems was a good cookbook has amazing photos. Mm-hmm. And people were sending photos in with their old, you know, this is before cell phone cameras, with their old point and shoots and the photos weren't that sharp. Yeah. We never sold any copies of that book. We did not even produce <laughs> no. it. Um, whatever happened to... Oh, I should have thought about this before. i got nothing at the moment. I'll, I'll think of something as we go through the show. Okay. This week's discussion. You can veto this, but I just... So I organised a race at the weekend. It was a New Zealand triathlon champs. And um, I had a couple of people saying they were disgusted at the amount of littering that was happening out there on the course in terms of people dropping gel wrappers and stuff. Is that after the race you go and pick it up? Mm. Yeah. So were you disgusted as yeah. well? And so what, other than drafting, because I don't want everybody to bitch and moan about drafting, what other than drafting do, do athletes do in events that really gets under your skin? Okay. I yeah, don't want to okay. be negative, Nancy, here, but we're gonna, well, you're we gonna are to going to yeah, yeah, this yeah, week. This is definitely, this is your, if you are the pessimist, this is your week. Mm. If, you are, if you see the world, the glass half empty, this is your week to let it out. Okay, so what the question is, what other than drafting do athletes do in events that gets under your skin? Okay, Jombo, we've got an interview. Oh, do you want to do Statstastic first? We'll do Statstastic Okay, Statstastic. We've got a great fantastic. interview coming up. Oh, yeah, three, two, one. Statstastic. It's fantastic. fantastic. We've got Craig Alexander coming up real soon. Um, and we just thought we'd look through some of his amazing career stats. So he is, first stat is he's a three-time Ironman world champion. So in 2008, he pulled away from Nico Lanos on the run to take his very first victory. And then his, his three victories were quite different. So in 2009, um, he had to pull back a 12-minute lead from Chris Lieto. Oh, that's right. And at that stage... That was when Chris, Chris was wearing all the white, wasn't it? And uh, that might have been Chilbourne Sinbali. Oh, no, you put, yeah, you're right. But Chris right. Lieto, you know, he had some big bike rides over there, but he had got his running to a level where you're going... This is touch and go, and there was a time in that race where you're thinking, this might come down to the wire, but it ended up being okay for Crowey, and he got through. But Chris Leader had was in really good 70.3 form at the time, so that was a different victory. And then 2011 was a totally different victory for Crowey, because I think it was 2010, he got cleaned out on the bike in terms of uh, they just he just was miles off, and I think he ended up fourth or fifth or something like that uh, but 2011 he came back having everybody been criticizing him that he wasn't strong enough on the bike and he could only win on the run and he just blitzed everybody and it was a complete triathlete performance wasn't it it was like it was phenomenal i don't think every like, aspect of it was awesome yeah i can't remember if he was first off the bike but he had the fastest bike split of the top 10 at the end of the day and uh yes yeah, so a very impressive so and he still ran like a legend mm. You know, like it wasn't like he, you know, then suffered in the bike on the run. Because there was a course record, wasn't it? Uh, I can't remember if that year was a course record, but he certainly has a course record. I'm pretty sure it was a course record, yeah. yeah. So he's a three-time Ironman champ. That's stat number one. Stat number two is he is a two-time Ironman 70.3 champ. So in 2006, he won in Florida and 2011 in Las Vegas. But a stat that we didn't ask him about that is incredibly impressive, seven consecutive... um, Half Ironman oh, victories? Hold what, on. What have you done here? <laughs> what you is, done? <laughs> I said it's my Bevan, voice pointing the finger no, at me. No, this is, I said to Bevan before, this morning, the number two on my computer stopped <laughs> oh, working. Right. 
Uh, I said the number two stopped working, and so I can't do number twos. Um, but so what I'm is just, it? I'm pretty sure I'll have to validate this, but it's a very impressive stat. A stat that you don't know. It is. I'm pretty sure it's supposed to be 27. Oh, okay. So let me just see. It must be. Yes, 27. <laughs> the number of consecutive half Ironman distance victories between 2004 and 2010. Oh, wow. Well, in, in a row? Yes. Oh, wow. That is impressive. 27 consecutive half <laughs> Ironman victories. Not just seven. Seven's not that impressive. Yeah. That is very impressive. Well, that was the thing. <clears throat> when he came over to Ironman, because he was a he was an okay ITU, wasn't he? Yeah, just okay. And then yeah. a great seventy point three or half Ironman back yeah. in those days. When he came to Ironman, what were you thinking? Um, I was a little bit out of the game at the time. I, I thought he'd be really good, but not not as good as perhaps he was. But he had, he was not very good at draft legal ITU. Uh, he was good, very good at non drafting, uh, and very good at. Half Ironmans. Yeah. And then he came across and became very good at Ironmans. Oh, very good. Legend. Good news is, we're going to be talking to him right now. So here is Craig Alexander, the three-time Ironman World Champion, and a 27, not seven, consecutive winner of a half Ironman races in between 2004 and 2010. Here he is, and this is a pretty cool interview. Okay, guys, uh, very happy to have uh, multiple world champion Craig Alexander back on the show, and we're quite fortunate that we've actually got him on this week, because in the next couple of weeks, I don't think he'll be talking to us, because our Kiwi cricket team is going to smash the Australians uh, in some upcoming trail. games. So welcome, <laughs> welcome back to the show, Craig. Hi, gents. Thanks for having me on. Now, I was doing um, doing my research on you yesterday, just trying to scan through your social media feed to see what you've sort of been up to lately, and I noticed your arm in a sling. What the hell's going on there? Yeah, I took a little tumble on the bike in, in early November, so ended up breaking my collarbone and four ribs. Ooh. Yeah, pretty painful, but um, I think I'm through the worst of it now, just sort of rehabilitating and getting the range of motion and the strength back and... Uh, I was I was disappointed. It was the first serious block of training I'd done in about three years. To be honest, I, I got home in the middle of last year, about July of last year, from all my promotional travel, and I had nothing scheduled in the back half of the year other than a, a seven day trip to Kona. So I I knuckled down and sort of wound back the clock a little bit in terms of my training. Um, scheduled um, some really great sessions and some great consistency. So I got about. 10 brilliant weeks in and then he unfortunately um, got knocked off by another bike rider two weeks before the 70.3 race in Western Sydney. So I'd actually scheduled Western Sydney and Taupo 70.3s for the back end of the season mm. and unfortunately missed both of them. But, um, you know, on I guess the other side of the coin, I've been doing this for 24 years as a professional and it was the first sort of broken bone of any sort that I've had from training or from an accident so I guess from that perspective I've been I've been quite lucky bit, bit worse than a broken finger <laughs> well I don't know mate your finger was pretty well broken <laughs> anyway the other thing that I, I noticed on your feed there you got completely toweled in a celebrity sprint race along a beach plus you were doing some 4k um, run soft sand run or something like that yeah, you have done your research yeah <laughs> You're dealing with the best here, mate, I tell you. Yeah, I should have known. I should have known. <laughs> yeah, no, so that was probably, oh, I would say that was in October. Yeah, I just got contacted 
there was a an event run over on Bondi Beach. It was a soft sand run, and it was to raise money um, for a few charities. And I actually got contacted to – they wanted me to fire the starting gun. So I thought, yeah, how hard can that be? So I went over, and we've actually got good friends who live very close to Bondi Beach. Um, yes, uh, a couple who I was I was a groomsman at their wedding, and and Johnny he was a he was a groomsman at Nary and my wedding, which happened to be 19 years ago today. But that's another story. Oh. Uh, <laughs> um, so yeah, went over there, and we actually went out the night before. I had a few beers, and then I got up and, and ran. I did a long run that morning, just over two hours, and got down to Bondi Beach and. <clears throat> Had myself a bacon and egg roll and a coffee, <laughs> and strolled up to the start line. And the, the organizer said, "Well, mate, it might be good if if you want to do the race as well." And I thought, "Well, that that would have been nice to know." <laughs> so anyway, I jumped in and mate, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. I took off like a cut cat and held the lead for a little bit, but then this um, specialist soft sand runner came past and absolutely towelled me up, um, and it was one of the toughest toughest runs I've ever done I, th- I thought you know we might be able to run down close to the water's edge where the sand gets a little harder but you have to stay right up into the soft stuff and it oh. was it was it was brutal it was for, four, for 4k for 4k mate there was actually a 10k <laughs> there was a 10k option I'm glad he didn't put me into that one but I couldn't walk for about four days afterwards my calves were that knotted Nice. So, um, obviously, you know, you're on the, you know, towards the twilight of your career and people are sort of eager to know what, what your plans are for, for 2018. I think I've been in the twilight for about five years now. <laughs> um, yeah, no, my plan this year was a little different. Last year I only raced three times and it was early in the year. Um, the last few years with the kids and, and other things going on, i found that the best opportunities I've had to train have been over sort of December, January. Um, so that's what I've done. And then I've raced early in the year. Um, I've raced typically in um, a big race we have in Huskisson or, or in Geelong. And then I've done a race up in the Philippines in Subic Bay and then um, Bustledon 70.3. I've, I've raced the last couple of years. So this year I wanted to race a little more. So that was the plan. Um once again, the schedule includes Huskisson this year, which is in three weeks. I, I don't think I'm going to make the start line of that one because of the shoulder. Um, but I've got Malulabar Olympic distance race planned for, for March, and then I've got a 70.3 race up in China for April, bustled in again in May. Um, so that was the first half of the year. And then I haven't raced in the US for about three years, so I wanted to race over there again. Uh, I do have a bit of promotional travel towards the middle of the year, so. Um, but then um, racing the the plan is to race the Asia Pacific seventy point three champs in the Philippines, Cebu, in August, uh, and then later in the year again, um, potentially either the seventy point three race in Thailand or Western Sydney, and, and hopefully I'll get over to Taupo in December. So um, that's the plan. So that's a lot more racing than I've done the last few years, um, and for no other reason than I just. I really wanted to do it. Um, as you mentioned, I mean, you know, I'm I'm closer to the end than I am to the beginning of, of my career and I still love to race. You know, I still really love to train and to race. I love the competition, um, the preparation and, and all those things that go into it and I've sort of missed it the last few years not racing as much. So um, the plan this year was to do it. Obviously, my life's a little different. I've got 
the three kids and our youngest starts school this year and our eldest is in high school. So I, I try to race closer to home um, and just pick races that fit the schedule a lot better. Um, but that's the plan for this year, boys. Yeah, a little bit more racing. With, with you, you know, when when you were kind of trying to win Kona, you were definitely the guy who t- didn't never lift the stone unturned. You know, I know just speaking to you at the time, it was kind of like, I'm going to do everything it's going to take to win this race. As an athlete now, and lifestyles change, time and careers change, how is the approach to racing in regards to your training and to regards to the focus you give to it and the preparation that you do? And, and, and what have you learned from that kind of where you are within your career? Yeah, that's a great question, mate, because I think things have to change um, as your life changes. And for me, one of the hardest things was that focus and that mentality because it was it was all-consuming. You know, mm. it was – for me, racing in Kona was – well, it was a dream. It was the first triathlon I'd ever seen, so it was a dream come true to race there, um, let alone to, to win there. And it was just an all-consuming obsession. I, I remember racing there some years and – finishing the race and being in the medical tent on a drip and and starting to plan the campaign for the following year. Um, and I know that, that sort of wore on the people around me, but for me it wasn't – that was actually the fun of it. Mm. It was part of, part of the fun of it was the planning and the continually trying to unlock different avenues of performance or, or improve performance. So, you know, as I've gotten older, obviously a couple of things have changed. Firstly, physically – um, my body's changed, so I've had to learn to train a little differently. And that can be hard to do when you've trained a certain way and the same way for a long time, then to have to change things every year. And I've noticed from about 40 or 41 onwards, my, my body has certainly changed. I can't do the volume of training that I used to do. I don't have the time to do it, but when I've gotten into little training blocks, if I've tried to recreate that sort of volume, it just hasn't worked. So you have to figure out physically what your body now needs and I guess what's diminishing from a physical standpoint and what you need to focus on and and being able to accept that that's the way forward and that you do need more recovery and that doesn't mean you're lesser of an athlete. That that was a hard mm-hmm. concept to grasp because you it kind of undermines your confidence a little bit when you can't train the way you used to. I guess you question, am I, same the, am I, am I the same athlete I used to be? Um, I think – you realize at some point that after 23 or 24 years of full-time training with with pretty good training practices that you've accumulated such a, a base of fitness and you hear people talk about that all the time and I used to wonder what that meant. I used to think if I don't train 30 hours a week that that's, you know, I'm not going to be fit. But what you, what you realize is that that does count for something, the technical aspects, the muscle memory. You know, I've, I've learned that I, I – I don't need anywhere near the amount of work that I used to need to get in great race shape. Um, so I think what changes is physically, um, your physicality and the way you have to train, but also mentally being able to accept that. And also part of, I think, the mental the mental shift is, you know, you've got other things going on in your life. I've got, I've got three babies at home and they're the priority. I shouldn't say they're babies now, but... <laughs> Um, and that's been a nice shift because for, for 15 years it was all about the training and the, and the racing and, and you know I, I sort of knew it was the, the right time well you don't know at the time but when I stepped away from Kona I probably went one year too many and, and in hindsight I can look back and I can see that now 
in 2013, um, you know, we got to Kona and our, our youngest child, Lani, was eight weeks old. And we'd been, in, we'd been in Boulder. Sorry, we got to Boulder, I should say. We got, we got to Boulder and two weeks later, my wife got really sick and ended up in hospital. She got shingles in her throat and um, was quite serious. I was going to intubate her at some point because her airways were so swollen shut. She oh, couldn't wow. breathe. You know, I'm in the middle of a Kona block or just about to start a Kona training block. And Neri was in intensive care for 10 days and then hospital for another 10 days after that. And, you know, her family had always stepped up and, you know, her mum used to come over at certain times to help out and my mum would come over or, or her younger sister Jules. And, you know, that was the first time when I sort of felt it was my responsibility to look after the family. After 20 years of everybody jumping through hoops so that I could race as a professional, I sort of felt a huge responsibility that, you know, these are my kids and I really need to look after them. And I remember Neri's younger sister, Jules, was on the phone every day saying I can come over. She was coming over later in the summer anyway. And she said, you know, I can bring my trip forward a month. And I just felt guilty that everyone else should have to shift and change their life so that I can keep training. And, you know, looking back, um, as it happened, I went to Kona that year and I didn't have a great race, but that was more because of a mechanical. I had a couple of mechanicals during the, the race. I, I got a flat tire early in the race and then dropped my chain late um, and spent so much energy on the bike catching up to the front group on both those occasions that I didn't run very well. Um, but I think it was also a, a mental shift that year that maybe I was just moving into a different phase of life and it seemed ridiculous that I should be completely 100% focused on, on that race in Kona in my early 40s um, when I had young kids at home. And, you know, I, I look at Brownie now and his renaissance in, in, in Ironman racing and I am kind of envious. He's, he's, he's absolutely killing it, Brownie, but I, I just, you know, I think we're at different stages. His kids are much older than mine. Um, his, his kids are teenagers and they're, you know, they're off to school and doing their own thing, you know, the year I'm talking about, 2013, our baby was, was eight weeks old and we had two older children and, you know, I think you move into a phase in life that kind of, you get conflicted, you know, even though it is my profession and my job, I can still do my profession and do it well, but it doesn't have to be all consuming for the family. That that sort of weighed on me and I think that was the, the shift that, that tipped the balance for me, that Neri had um, sacrificed so much and, and the, the wider family had sacrificed so much so that I could prepare and do things a certain way, what I thought was the right way, but after a while it just weighs on you and you think, well, you know, yeah, I, I could go back to Kona and be competitive again, but at what cost to, to your personal life and to your, to your mindset and to your mentality and to your family as well. So, you know, at the time I, I didn't really see it. Now looking back, it was a clear turning point for me, 2013. Um But anyway, I've gone off track. What was the question? <laughs> no, I remember, I remember actually seeing you... Um post race, I can't remember what year it was, and you you, you could tell that you'd uh, you'd done your dash. I think it was Pete Jacobs one, wasn't it? I think it might have been. Yeah. yeah. Um. I, I just around that mentality side of things. You know, you're still really competitive when you're going to these seventy point three races, but sometimes it's more of a, you know, maybe a second or a third or a fifth or something like that, instead of always being the guy that's winning the races. Are you still getting satisfaction when you're going out there and say, I think it was Sunshine Coast last year, you got a fifth place. I don't know if that 
that was a, a good race or not. But do you still get satisfaction out of um, when you're not winning? I do if I'm performing at the level I know I can perform at. And, you know, that race was prob- possibly um, – I, I was under par for sure um, or over par depending on what – if you're using a golf analogy. I, I wasn't mm-hmm. – I, I used that – I just got home from overseas and I only really had four weeks to train. But I, I felt that I could squeeze that race in and it would help with bump my fitness up, which it did. Um, and then I knew I was going – to Kona for race week for promotional activity. So I, I thought, you know, I wouldn't get another race in until Western Sydney um, and then Talpo. So it was part of a bigger picture. And, and, and that's the difference. I mean, the the racing used to be scheduled as a priority. And in recent times, often it's scheduled to help you build. I, I've used it to help build fitness, um, which I would have never done in the height of my career. Every race for me was like a world championship. I wanted to perform at a very high level. Um. So to answer your question, if I've still – and I have been able to perform. I mean, last year I won a race and had a couple of seconds or a second, I think. I had a win and a second and then that race on the sunny coast. So, um, yeah, I felt I slightly underperformed. Um, I wasn't far off. I was, I was under two minutes off the win. But that one, I'm not going to lie if I said to you I was completely happy after the race. But it was part of the bigger picture. I, I knew by racing – a good quality field that would bump my fitness up a few percent and it did um, and I hadn't raced since early May and, and I just felt going into Western Sydney which was the Asia Pac champs last year I felt it would have been a mistake to have not raced since May so that would have been six months without a race and but like you mentioned lads that, that's the difference now you know I a lot of my travel mainly is for promotional work and you know I'm still very lucky to have a lot of loyal sponsors, some of which I've had for over 10 years. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, when you're racing and and winning races like Kona and the 70.3 Worlds and and Lifetime Fitness in Minnesota, the sponsors can leverage the relationship with your performances when you don't race as much. I think they want to utilize or leverage the relationship in other ways, and that means turning up to a lot more things. Um, And that's cool too. That's that's. You know, they gave me the leeway to prepare when I was racing in Hawaii and the other big races. And now, you know, a lot of my, uh, I guess, work with the sponsors is turning up at races or expos or doing photo shoots and things like that. So um, it's great that they still see the value in having me around. So, um, but to answer your question, I think that it speaks to the, the, the earlier question you asked as well is how do you schedule the races? I think I've got to be very careful that I look at, at what my, my calendar looks like from, I guess, a family point of view, what, what's going on in the home life, what's going on with the, the travel for the sponsors and, and camps that we're running with San Zigo as well. And then if I get a, a little six or eight-week block at home, thinking, okay, I can ramp the training up in that period and I'll try and schedule a race at the end of it. So it's about checking a few different boxes these days. It's certainly a different point of my career than when I used to just sit down with the calendar and I'd put the races in first and foremost, and that was the priority. Um, there's a few boxes to check now, and like I said, I've got to fit the racing and the training in around the family life and my training business and, and the sponsorship travel, which I, I see as a priority, um, and those sorts of things. And, and then finding a race that's close to home. You know, I spend most of the time now in Australia, so yeah, you know, I look around Asia Pacific, um, and luckily there's, you know, the, the sport's really. I guess exploding in Asia. There's races in China and, and Japan, Korea, Philippines. Um, 
so there's, there's races not too far from home, plus all the races we have in Australia and New Zealand, um, whether they be WTC or challenge races, I think there's a lot on the menu to choose from. So it's a matter of checking a few boxes, though, when I select a race. And, 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 and the final one, and, and one that's no less important, is making sure that I perform at a level. You know, I just don't want to make up the numbers. <coughs> you know, I, I, I still pride myself on I think I can compete at the highest level. You know, I went to the 70.3 World two years ago and, and got a top 10. Um, a race I went into a little bit sick, to be honest, but I had a great year and the organisers asked if I wanted to do the race. It was the first time the 70.3 World Champs had been in Australia. Uh, my plan that year had to be had been to race early in the year and, and, and then not do much. But, you know, I got to America. I had a great race in Vineman in a quality field. I got on the podium. And then I went to the Asia Pacific Champs and got a second place, um, which qualified me for Worlds. And I think what I found that year was when when things aren't scheduled early in the year, there's a lot more challenges and pitfalls, you know, I because I hadn't planned on training and racing into September. That's where I saw the age factor come in and my body did struggle with that intense work <coughs> later in the year. So... But it's it's a jigsaw puzzle that and, and for me that's part of the fun as well, figuring out how I can still be competitive and um you know, I, I wanna race the Tim Reeds and the and the Tim Burkles and um you know, Sam Appleton and Andy Potts and Terenzo, you know, I that that still gets me excited. They're the guys who are still at the forefront of the sport. You know, I went to a race last year up in uh Subic Bay, a seventy point three race. Where Tim Reed was racing at the time, he was the reigning 70.3 world champ. Michael Raylert was in the race. He was a two-time former 70.3 world champ. I was in the race. Sven Riederer, who was a, an Olympic medalist, he was in the race. Rudy Wilde was racing. He'd won a bronze medal at 70.3 worlds in the previous year. So I still like to to get in the mix. They're the races that I still like to do. So, um, you know, that's what... I think being a competitive person, that's what gets your juices flowing and, and they're the races that, you know, if they work, I still try to fit them in the schedule. You know, you, you've been the man, if you know what I mean. Like if we look at the ego side of it, you know, there was a moment in this time in this sport where you were kind of the man. And um, A, did you enjoy being that? And B, what, how does it shift when you're no longer that? And how is it easy to accept? Mate, that's a great question. I think when... When you are the man, as you say, I, I didn't really, I wouldn't say I didn't enjoy it, but it was always about the next race. And I think every race, I mean, any athlete can, can well, I shouldn't say any athlete, it's not easy to win any race these days or for the last 15 years, the sport, the competitiveness and the depth. And, um, you know, I think for a long time now, for over 10 years, the short course racing, or probably for the, the entire history of our sport, the short course racing has been super competitive and it's been the breeding ground for the long course racing. I mean, a couple of names. I remember 2009 in Kona thinking, oh, this is going to be the most competitive Kona ever because you've got all the ITU guys coming over after the Olympics the preceding year and, you know, guys like Rasmus Henning and Dirk Bockel and Andy Raylert. And so when I was the man, I just always felt I had to be on guard for the next wave of people coming through. Mm. So I guess there's a pressure. And I think every athlete 
you know, wants to be consistent. That's your main goal. And, and, and for me, that, that's the point I was trying to make. You know, I think a lot of athletes have been able to win a race and then disappear for two or three years and then come back and perform well again. The really best athletes, if you look through the history on, on the male and female side, they continually perform at a very, very high level every single time they race. Mm. And I wanted to be that kind of athlete. So I felt a pressure. Um, you know, the more you win or medal at a world championship, I felt um, the pressure to keep performing, to keep raising the bar. Um, I didn't want to disappear. Even for a year, I wanted to always be – it's not like I went into every championship race thinking I have to win, but I certainly went in thinking I have to perform at the level I did here last year or 1% or 2% better. So I think there's a pressure that comes with it. It's certainly enjoyable from the standpoint of being at the forefront of the sport. I mean, that's what you dream of doing. And as you're training hard and progressing through the sport, that's – you know, and I was – always mindful of wanting to enjoy that period, and I did. And it didn't come without its pressures, but I did enjoy it. I enjoyed being at the level that I'd hoped I could, and, you know, as an aspiring young athlete riding through the streets of Maloose with John Newsom and Bev Doherty. And, you know, you dream, you, do, you dream of winning big races, championship races, um, the races that are on television. Uh, you know, at the time when I went to the U.S., that was races like St. Croix and Lifetime Fitness in Chicago. You dream of being able to compete and win in those races. So you enjoy it. And then I think when it's an interesting shift when you come out the other side and, and the next wave come through because for a period there you still think – and I, I, I wouldn't ever think that I walked around thinking I was the man, but you certainly – you front up at major races thinking that um, – you know, I'm a chance to, to do well here if I do all the right things. And, you know, now looking back, like I, I referenced before that race in 2013, and now in retrospect I can look back and think, gee, I was almost kidding myself that year because it, I had – physically I was in a place where I could have won, but mentally I'd almost checked out and my priorities and focus were starting to, to change. And I think that's inevitable. And I think you've just got to grow and accept it and – and for me, it was easy to do when, you know, having having children and um, the, the focus as a parent shifts on, onto your family and I think that's a healthy thing. It can almost be unhealthy to be, I think almost by definition as a professional athlete, you have to be selfish because you're always, you know, every day you're asking questions of yourself like, have I slept enough last night? Am I doing the right sort of training? Am I eating right? Is my strength and recovery or strength and conditioning program on point? It's a lot of inward focus, right? It's a lot of I, 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 and you know, it's almost a relief to move through that period. And and I, it, it was, I wouldn't say it was an easy transition. It's not an easy. It's a very hard transition. But I know having a family, it gave me something to think about their well-being, but also financially. You know, I thought. You know, I was still racing Kona as a 40 and a 41-year-old, and it used, I used to think, uh, what, how am I going to provide for this family for the next 20 years? Because I certainly can't race for 20, you know, the next 20 years into my 60s. Well, I can race, but I'm not going to be making money doing it. <laughs> um, so that, that starts weighing on your mind, and I think when those questions start taking up the forefront of your mind, you're really not concentrating and focusing on your training like you know, you mentioned before, John, you like to go through Instagram and, and I do too, you know, I like to 
I like to go to, I follow a certain number of athletes in all sports, but especially in our sport. And, you know, I like to go through all the guys who are racing and, and competing for the Olympic medals, like the Brownlee brothers, and, and also the guys and girls who are competing for the Kona victories. I like to, to follow them on Instagram. And, you know, and you see people like Patrick and, and Jan and, and Lionel and the kind of videos that they're posting in the training they're, used, they're, they're now doing. You think, yeah, I remember, I remember those days. I remember getting up and training from from dusk until dawn every day and there was nothing else on your mind except that. And I think the shift becomes inevitable as you move into later life and other things start moving from the back of your mind into the forefront of your mind and I think that's just a natural progression. Um, it certainly takes some getting used to and, you know, it's always nice for the ego to go and walk around Kona and race week and people want to come up and have photos with you and, you know, you can go to – to Humpies or Lulas and have a few beers and tell everyone how good you used to be. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Hey, one, one thing that you're, you are involved in um, is the Collins Cup, um, and we know that that's been deferred till the following year. What's it going to take for that race or that event to essentially be a game changer? We've heard of you know, game-changing things happening before, but that's kind of been just you know, maybe some extra prize money like they had in Challenge Bahrain. Um, what's it going to take for this to work? And, and do you think there's buy-in from the current generation of top athletes? Because we know there's a lot like yourself, like Chrissy, Aaron Baker, Dave Scott, Mark Allen, etc. They're all sort of uh, involved in terms of you know, captain's roles, but what's it going to take for that current generation to, for them to have this as a priority and for it to be, you know, um, yeah, the next biggest thing outside of Kona? That's a great question, mate, and I don't really have the answer to that question. I don't know what it's going to take everyone to buy in. I think, you know, if we look historically, for things to really get traction and take hold and, and to get buy-in, I guess the races need to, to mean something. They need to have history or prestige. And typically that's been the world championships and then in more recent times, the Olympics. I think, you know, the Olympic Games and, and our sport getting Olympic status has been huge uh, for triathlon um, because it's that automatic prestige that you know it's implied that people are going to want to to make an Olympic team and represent their country at the Olympics. And that wasn't always the way, you know, particularly when, you know, you and I started, John, it, it hadn't really got into the Olympics. And mm. I think for this current generation and even for the most recent generation, having that there is, is huge. It's just one more quality string that we've got to our bow as a sport. Um, what One thing that intrigued me, and firstly, I'm, I'm glad they postponed the Collins Cup this year because I think it has to be done well right from the beginning. I don't think there's much margin for error if you want to do something right. What intrigued me about the whole concept of it was wasn't just that race, the Collins Cup, but the people behind it, the structure that they see for the sport moving forward. And I think sports, eventually, they do evolve and they grow um, depending on a lot of things, depending on the needs of the athletes, whether they be amateur or professional athletes, depending on the way the sport's perceived by a wider audience and wanting to take a sport to a wider audience. Um, so there's a lot of things and there's a lot of, a lot of different stakeholders in the sports. What, what I liked about speaking to the people behind the Collins Cup was the vision they have for the sport as a whole, not just that one event, and how they've looked at other sports and tried to, to see what models have worked in other sports. Um, 
and two of the examples that I discussed with with them were were tennis and golf, and you know in both those sports, an association formed in in tennis it was the ATP, um, the Association of Touring Professionals, and in golf obviously it was the PGA. Um, so what used to happen in golf, for argument's sake, was that you know private companies or promoters would own events and golfers would turn up. And, and do those events and hopefully win some prize money. And there wasn't a lot of prize money in it back in the day. But what eventually happened was, you know, the, the golfers themselves and people in and around those golfers realized that they had to form an association or you can call it a union. You can call it whatever you want. People get scared when you use the word union. I like the word association. It just It's just a collective, right? It's a collective of the golfers. And, you know, they ended up, becoming quite a powerful association, I guess, and um, now they have some ownership in and some, um, I guess, say in the direction of the sport. And th- those sports where that's happened have, have seemed to have done well, right? Um, mm-hmm. You've got television into the sports, and with television comes um, more money, which I think helps all the sports. Inevitably, the money comes from television rights, and I guess the challenge for us as a sport is how we're going to package it to make it interesting for a wider audience. Because I think the true sports or triathlon fans, like 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 you guys and like myself, I mean, I can go and watch Kona, and I find it intriguing. Um, I can watch the ITU, and I, I love watching that. I, I love watching the Island House. I love watching the way the sports packaged up into different ways. I, I really enjoyed watching Super League the last couple of years. You know, I think. For those of us who have been around long enough, we'll remember the old Formula One series in Australia, the St. George series, and, you know, I came up through that, and that's really what the Super League is, just a reinvention of that, really, mixed format racing um, over multi-days, over different days. You know, we used to have the, the Fuji Xerox Tour as well, which was which was another, I guess, incarnation of that style of racing. So I think the challenge has been how do we package our sport up to make it interesting to a wider audience where it could potentially be on television. I think there's a lot of challenges. I mean, this year I I know myself and, and Dave, Scott and Chrissy, we had a few questions about how would this Collins Cup work with Roth, you know, not get lost in the mix because that's an iconic event in its own right. Um, so how are we going to launch? Obviously it makes sense to use something that has a great platform already and a great audience to launch something else. But then how does this new... I guess entity not get lost in the aura and um, you know the greatness of that event in Roth, which is one of the iconic events in our sport. So there's certainly different challenges. I think for me, I, I guess a lot of the attraction was just the way they were giving thought to not just what what the Cons Cup will be of its own right in, as one event, but how the sport will look five or ten years from now. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, some, that's a good question that all of us who love the sport need to, to ask. Um, how will the sport look five or ten years from now? I think, you know, as we grow and evolve and mature as a sport, what are the things that we need to do moving forward so that the whole sport's prospering? And, and you know, most of the sport, 99.9% of the participants in our sport are amateur athletes. So we need to make sure we cater to them. We need to make sure we cater to you know, the younger athletes coming through. I know I started as a 20 or 21-year-old, as did a lot of the, my contemporaries like 
I guess Greg Bennett and Craig Walton and those sort of guys were a little younger. They came through running and, and surf life-saving. I, I played soccer, but you look now, it's a different generation, boys. We look at the Brownleys and Gomez, and those guys are groomed as triathletes from eight- or nine-year-olds. And we look now at the national federations and how they identify talent, um, and they're doing it in, in school. And, and I know triathlon has just become a, a college sport in the U.S., I know in New Zealand, you guys have the, the Wheat Bix Kids Triathlon, and, and we have the same in Australia, and it's also now a, a school sport in Australia. I know my daughter's qualified for the All Schools Triathlon um, in two or three weeks. She came third at the state one they had, and so I noticed, you know, they're, they're, the sport's got more of a structure, and, and there's more of, I guess, a pathway for younger athletes, but I guess as a sport, we have to make sure that we can attract the great athletes into our sport as well, so... I guess the question becomes, how do we nurture the, the grassroots? How do we bring the, the talented young athletes into the sport? How do we make sure the amateur or the age group side of the sport is super healthy? And how do we make sure the pro side of the sport's healthy? And it's, it's answering all those questions. And I don't have all the answers, but speaking to the guys from the Collins Cup, it was the first time that all those things factored into the conversation. So I thought, you know, that's got to be the, the way forward. Um, and also, you know, when you have people like Chrissy and Dave and Karen Smyers lending their name to it, I think it's sort of our responsibility um, to help give it a platform and leverage it in the beginning. Um, you know, the sport's been great to all of us. And I think at some point you have to, to so what can I do to help the sport um, in some way or another, in some small way? And, and you know, I think if, some of the past champions can can lend their support to a concept that hopefully will will get some traction and get legs and, and leave the sport in a better place and it's our responsibility to do that. I mean, obviously the jury's still out and um, the Collins Cup has been put off for another year. But I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I was intrigued with a lot of the, the rankings they came up with. It, it gave some interest, you know, who the way the sport was broken up into regions and athletes were ranked and so were given a world ranking and then that whole concept, that team concept, I think that adds another layer of excitement. That could really add to an interesting, um, you know, you look in golf, they have the Ryder Cup and, and different teams events. And I think in triathlon, it could it could potentially add another layer of excitement or interest. Um, you know, how, how would that work with the teams? Could we potentially get in guys and guys and girls racing? Would it become more tactical? Um how do you pit people up against each other based on their different strengths? I, I think depending on if the format's well thought out, it could be interesting for sure. So, yeah, uh, you know, it's a long way from coming to fruition, but there has been a lot of thought and a lot of meetings and things done behind the scenes. And I think ultimately, I guess we'll see moving forward, but I, I don't I don't mind the idea of the sport evolving and progressing and, um, at the moment, you know, obviously WTC are very strong, but WTC are a private business. So um, I think it's just the way the ownership spread around the different stakeholders. That's how I see the sport changing moving forward. Mm, nice. A couple of quick fire questions because we know we've uh, got to let you get back to go and make uh, Neary breakfast on your, your anniversary. So <laughs> if you've got time for a couple more questions, that'd be well, great. You know, 
if she knows what's good for her, she'll be making me breakfast. Oh, here we go. <laughs> that's, that's not what you're saying, mate. Trust me. <laughs> no. um, Marcel I'm, Van Kempen was saying, are you doing any more Ironmans? At this stage, I would say no, but you'll never say never. One race set, I would. I, I must say, I don't have any real regrets in my career other than I never raced in Roth. Um, and I got Felix invited me for like 10 years straight. Um <laughs> And I never, I just never got there for one reason or another. You know, as a family, we always based in Colorado, and it was a, it was a big logistical operation to get, um, you know, myself and Neri and the kids to Colorado, and I just couldn't. Then after we'd all got to Colorado, up and go to Europe for two weeks or whatever it would have taken to to prepare well for that event. So that was the main reason I didn't do it, but. <clears throat> Uh, I, there's no Ironmans on the calendar this year, but I do oh, I do think about Roth every year when it's on, that's for sure. <laughs> you've, you've actually answered one uh, another question there from Nick Morales who said, uh, which race do you wish you'd done during the prime of your career? So we'll call that rote. And um, yeah. what was one of your, your favourite race experiences before winning Kona? So, you know, a lot of people won't know much about your career prior to that other than the 70.3 World Champs, but what is, you know, have you got any sort of really fond memories memories before you became identified as uh, you know a real Ironman guru uh, yeah I guess for me it comes back to you know I, I think as athletes we when when you're younger you get certain things have impact and leave a mark on you or influence you and I remember before I was a triathlete watching Chicago and, and St. Croix two races in the US watching them on television in Australia so going to do those races um was amazing uh amazing experience and, and particularly the one in st croix that was a prestigious race with a lot of history all the great champions of our sport had won there and for anyone who's raced there it's it's a little island in the caribbean the homestays were amazing um and they became friends and, and each year you know it's kind of like a reunion it was the start of the season and all the athletes from from asia pacific and north america and europe We'd meet there to race, and you'd always have the same homestay. It was just, it was a great weekend, so that was a good one. But also, I think the Lifetime Fitness Race in Minnesota. Uh, you know, there's been a few big money races in our sport, but that was the first one. That was the first one that really, uh, where Lifetime Fitness put up two hundred thousand dollars in a car, and it was an invitation-only race. Um, they only invited twenty guys and twenty girls who they thought were the the best in the world over the Olympic distance in the in the previous 12 months. And then there was another sting in the tail as well. They had an equaliser format where they'd give the girls a head start mm. based on – they had some um, they had some mathematician guru come up with this uh, formula where he'd punch in all the race results from the preceding 12 months and it would spit out a number. And that was the head start that the girls would get. And so, in effect, you were racing – the guys and the girls and um, you know for me racing in america at that point i wasn't on the itu circuit at all it was the one race a year where i got to race guys like simon whitfield and hamish carter and bevan doherty because um, that was the one race a year that everybody would do whether you were training and racing for 70.3s or kona or you know the guys who were on the itu circuit everyone would always fit that race into their schedule because of the prize purse and it was live on NBC so it had a lot of prestige so winning that one in 05 was was huge 
I think to to race in a field of that that caliber and to win and and also you know just the prize purse the the money um, you know as you guys know being in New Zealand we're the same in Australia when you win US dollars mm. sometimes it's like doubling your money <laughs> you know we had I remember when I won the race Lucy was eight weeks old so we had a Neri and I had a new baby. Um, so from the emotional aspect, I was already on cloud nine being a new dad, but to win that race as well, yeah, it was, for me, that was probably as good as any of the Kona victories in my mind in terms of how it felt afterwards and, you know, the validation I felt as an athlete and just the excitement around that event. Fantastic. Final question we've got, um, just around the new Kona qualifying system. Um, so we've gone, next year we're going from a points-based system to very much you need to essentially be winning an Ironman race or getting you know, in the top couple to, to qualify. Um, so I guess I'd just be interested in your comment on that. And also where current champions you know, have that period where they basically just need to validate at an event. In a sense, that kind of gives you an un- unfair advantage that you don't necessarily have to go and race at a, at a very high level to qualify. So just maybe comment on, on those two, whether um, you think being a past champion, you deserve the right to have the extra special treatment and, um, and the new system. Yeah, mate, they're great questions. I think... The first question you have to ask is what's the goal? And the goal is to have the best athletes in their best form on the start line in October. Mm. So you need to you need to have that as your starting point and work backwards from there. I don't think a system that requires athletes to do three Ironmans a year is a good system. I don't think this system where you just have to continually accumulate points and you do it by the quantity of racing is a great system. Um I think adding the regional championships was a step in the right direction because if you were good enough, you could get enough points in in one event to qualify. I think this qualification system just tidies things up. It got confusing. You know, you need, you almost needed a PhD in mathematics to, <laughs> to figure out, um, you know, what races do I need to do and what what's the weighting of the points. I, I think whatever system's in place, it should come down to an athlete being smart with how they schedule their season and really only requiring one bite of the cherry to have to qualify. I mean, if it's, it, no doubt, that notwithstanding, you can always have mechanicals and a bad day for sure, and that's why you, you schedule a season with a couple of contingency plans and you always do that. Um, you know, I, I, having been to Kona and watched the last few years, I guess another point I'll weigh in on too is that how many how many spots there should be in Kona. You know, at the moment I think there's 30 women and, and 50 men or something like that. 35 women, isn't it? Is, yeah, is that what it is? Like yeah, that, yeah. So I'm not against having equal number. I think of men and women. I think that's that's a good starting point as well. And, and maybe less men. Maybe meeting somewhere in the middle, like 40 of each. Um, you know, I, I just think watching the race and how it unfolds. Maybe having 50, I think it ends up being 55 men anyway with mm. automatic qualifiers. And yeah, I don't know. I mean, a lot of past athletes would look at me saying that and think, you know, I came through. I mean, I remember the first couple of years I was in Canada, there were 110 guys on the start line. Mm. And it was, it was like a boxing match at the start of the swim. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I just think <clears throat> we've got to look at the sport and, 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 that race is a product and, and how are we going to present that for wider audience in, in a way that 
it looks like a world championship. So that's what's behind my thinking there. But I think the new qualification system is a little bit tidier. I think if you get a spot in the race, if you go to a race knowing that I've got to get first or second, and if you do that, you know you're in, that gives you clarity around your season. And I think it gives you clarity before the season. Every athlete knows they can, you know, schedule some some races and have to be in great form at um, at what time of the year. So I think it it gives everybody clarity and, and people watching the sport as well. It gives you some clarity on how, how it all works in the qualification process. You know, as far as the past champions, that, that's a good question as well because <clears throat> that was a, I guess that was a luxury that I had extended early in my career by winning Kona. I got automatic qualification for life. And then a year or two later, they changed the rule. And at the time, I was filthy. Um, <laughs> because, you know, a lot of the people who were making the rules were people who had won Kona in the past and had that. <laughs> True. You know, so I thought I thought it was a little bit unfair. But <clears throat> and I always used to think, you know, look at sports like golf. Look at the, May, you know, look at the Masters in Augusta. You know, it, it was always great to see Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicklaus and all those past champions go back. And they always had an invitation there to play. And I thought that added to the spectacle, watching them tee off on the first round. And, but, you know, golf's a little different to triathlon. Obviously, as a triathlete, the way you have to prepare and the wear and tear on your body. And I think you alluded to it, John, in the question. I think there is an advantage if you can get to October with only one Ironman in your legs as opposed to someone who's had to do three. Um, so it's certainly not a level, level playing field, although I think anyone – Anyone who's, who schedules their season well shouldn't have to do three Ironmans. But, um, you know, it's, it's a tough question to answer because that validation question, I always think that that, that validation's a hoax. Well, for me personally, it was. I thought, you know, they. I remember when I, w- I was blowing up about them changing the rule and someone said to me, well, you've only, you've only got to go and validate. I'm like, well, what does that mean? I mean, if I'm on the start line, I'm there to win or to – to perform at my highest level. There's no such thing as validation. There's racing and there's not racing. Mm. There's no in the middle. So I guess it comes down to the kind of athlete you are and, and and being able to know yourself. You know, it probably prematurely ended my career because I only ever did one Ironman a year until I was 38 or 39 years of age. And then having to try and do two, and you know, I'd, I'd always try and do Melbourne, which was a regional champs. So I'd have to race Brownie and Frederick and Aniko and Luke McKenzie, you know, they were great fields. So you'd have to get in great shape. And I know as a 39, 40-year-old, <clears throat> having to get in that shape twice a year and then having all, you know, having three young children as well, it just it made it tough. And for me, that was the tipping point. Um, because I know as an individual and, and knowing my personality, I couldn't just validate. I couldn't turn up to Melbourne knowing that Cameron was going to be there and Frederick and Aniko and Greg Bennett and Joe Gambles and, and, and think, well, I'm just going to validate. It wasn't in my nature to do that. I wanted to go and race those boys. Marino, Van Hunaka, all those guys, Dirk Bockel, I wanted to race them. And, you know, then the other side of the coin is one year, Marinda just went to Florida to yeah. validate and she walked around and I, I think there was a photo of her turn some photo turned up online of her eating some Pringles during the walking during the run. And she copped a lot of flack for that. And I I caught it at the time. I thought, oh, that's a bad look. The sponsors won't like that. The race organizers won't like that. 
and I could that's something I could have never done. But then, you know, you got to look at twelve months later, Marinda went out and won Kona again. Mm. So maybe it was the right thing to do. Mm. Um, maybe do it in a way that wasn't so public. You know, drinking beer and eating. <laughs> <laughs> that's, I, that you're always going to attract that attention when you're a Kona winner yeah, in a race. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So, you know, she went there thinking, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna. I'm not going to dip into my well one more time this year. I'm just going to go and validate. And looking back retrospectively and in hindsight, it was a great decision because she won Kona the following year. She didn't do an Ironman for another 11 months. I think Florida was in November. So she got an 11-month window to where she just put her whole focus in, into preparing well for Kona. And I think that strategy served her well twice. So I guess it comes down to knowing your personality as well. And I could never go to a race and – and do that. I wanted to perform at a high level, and I guess that's on me. That was my decision. That that wasn't, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, it's WTC's fault. It prematurely ended my Ironman career. That were my decisions, and I take ownership of those decisions. I think one of the things about being a good athlete, it's like being good at anything in life. You've got to be self-aware. You've got to know your strengths and weaknesses and play to them the best you can. So, I'm not wanting to digress. I think. I think this new qualification process is a step in the right direction if there's more clarity around. For me, I just felt that the the way the qualification process was set up with that point system wasn't about qualification. It was about stopping athletes from going to yeah. maybe to Roth or to other prestigious races. And for me, that I've never been one to, you know, I just thought that it's it's just shooting shooting ourselves in the in the foot as a sport. And I guess WTC, they're really just looking after their own agenda and, and it's it's their right to do that. Mm. I mean, they have a series of races and a sport in Hawaii which has stood the test of time. And Hawaii has been that one race which has continually captured the imagination of triathletes and, and people outside of the sport. So for that, they need to be congratulated. But I just think that qualification system there in the beginning, it was more about preventing people from doing other styles of races or other racing rather than it was about getting people on the start line in October. Hey, so f- final thing for you, because I'm very conscious of us taking up your, your morning, um, is um, just a bit of a plug for, for Sans Ego and um, what you guys are up to with, with that, you know, camps and uh, anything you want to promote. Yeah, well, I think you just promoted it for me. Thank you for saying <laughs> that. Yeah, it's just a little business we've got going. It's been going three or four years now. I'm... Um, you know, I always I always felt that triathlon was a sport where you're always learning. You're continually learning, um, even when you're winning. Even when you're winning world championships, you come across someone who knows more about training and preparation and about the sport than you do. And I thought it would be great to try and get some of those people under the same umbrella. And I'm lucky I've been able to do that. A lot of people who had a big influence on my career and were advisors at one point or another or people who... I came into contact with and I thought, geez, that person knows the sport. And yeah, we've got a lot of those people working with us under the same umbrella. umbrella so, and a lot of Kiwis in there. We've got Chris Pallone, Hamish's old coach, is mm. in there. Um, we've got Armando Galarraga, who is one of our coaches, Joe Lawn's husband. Um, we've got Rick Wells, who's been on a few of our camps and he writes our swim programs. So um, yeah, I'm very lucky that over my 20 odd years in the sport, I've come across some of the great past athletes uh, and some of the great coaches. And, you know, some of these guys and girls, 
have experience coaching Olympic champions and world champions, but they've got as much experience coaching people who work 40 hours a week and, and have a job and a family and are trying to reach their own personal training goals. So, um, yeah, so we, we've got personalized coaching. We've got, we've also written, a, I've got a lot of, I've got the coaches to write a lot of generic programs based on people's time availability. Cause what I found is a lot of athletes don't really want or need a coach looking over their shoulder every day. They just want a sort of a program to follow and, you know, just, I guess a general point in the right direction. Um, other athletes on the other hand do want to coach and, and in the essence that's what real coaching is that that interaction between coach and athlete in a very individual sense so we've we offer that as well and we've, we've also got camps going around the world so yeah it's um interesting little project we've got going and uh it's been fun cool guys so you can check that out sans ego dot co. Co. so crow thanks so much for your time yeah, um, your and go away and see if neri's made you some uh, breakfast <laughs> don't and, say that statement <laughs> don't even joke it and we'll uh ho- hopefully see you in kona in october yeah i'll be there I, thanks for having me on boys i appreciate you taking the time and um you notice that when I did talk about Neri making breakfast, I kept my voice down. So <laughs> awesome. You have a good day. You're a legend, mate. Thanks. Thanks, boys. Thanks for having me. Good to chat. John, your thoughts? Um, he's a legend and he's still going strong, which is awesome to see. He's still killing it at 70.3 distance and, yeah, insightful, very competitive man. I just I always feel fortunate that that one year in France that I had and I had the opportunity to be trained with him. So were you on his team? Yeah, we were in the AST, Who was in AST, ASTPP Malouse. There was uh, Craig Alexander, there was Bevan Doherty, there was myself, um, and then there was a guy called Mark O'Donnell and James Beach, and then we had a couple of Frenchies. And then the following year, um, Crowe didn't come back, but we then had Paul Amy and Macca also trained that previous year as well. So um, I wasn't definitely not in this, even remotely in the same league of those guys, but I still trained with them a bit. And what, uh, what um yeah, they both went. What on. age are you? Twenty one, twenty two, twenty twenty two. That was cool. In hindsight, you know, I would have done everything completely differently. <laughs> we were just going by the seat of our pants just making stuff up so it was good times but did you get sick what was it like living with each other was it did you get sick of each other or was it uh, it was only for five or six months or no probably less than that it's probably four months so yeah there's a few, little bit of friction from time to time no different to any normal flat but you just what about girls just training were the girls around uh yeah we went out a few times oh, but you know, ladies you're in, you're in a country where you know you're it's foreign language, and you, we, I spoke a bit of pidgin French at the time and got progressively better, but you know, we were just training and racing, yeah. training and racing, hanging out, watching crappy TV. As you do. Um, Jombo, let's do a winger of the week. Winger of the week, what number are you going to pull up? I'm going to say seven. You're going to say seven? Yep. That's what, random.org. So that's total duration. Total duration this week is... First place, Paul Moore with one day and one hour and 23 minutes of training over only four sessions. I'm pretty sure Moore's is Give Me. Is his nickname? Is it? I'm pretty no, sure it's it is. not. That's Rob Give Me Moore. Oh, okay. Yes. Um, one day over four sessions. He must have raced. You can you can check him okay, out. Okay, I'm going to check on him. him. Uh, yep. Second place uh, with 23 hours and one minute was Roman Garcin from France. And in third place with 21 hours and three minutes over 10 sessions was Hussan Itani 
from Try Dubai. On the female side of things, Tony Hodge took it out uh, with 15 hours and 19 minutes. Nadine Voice from just down the road from Bevan was uh, 14 hours and 40 minutes. And Melissa Uri was third with 11 hours and 51 minutes. I think he takes a holiday over Christmas. Right. <laughs> because if you look at his annual, he peaks in January. Look at last year. Look at this. Last year, massive yeah. miles. February, March was pretty of a disappointment. <laughs> so, so I'm just saying, saying, Paul, mate, sharpen up in February and March because if you can peak in, what's the one key to being successful, John? Consistency. Consistency. Look at that. Bang, bang, bang. It's like the stock market in the, not 87, this is. <laughs> so, um, but this month, he's done nearly 1,600 kilometres of cycling, 63 hours. He's done a lot of riding. He's got some pretty cool photos of different locations he's been to. Um, all time, he's cycled 30,000 k's, he's cycled for 1,200 hours, and his elevation is nearly 200, over 250,000 metres. So, Nice work. He's only rode 11 rides this year, okay. averaging cheap is a lot. <laughs> yeah, so there you go, Paul. It's just nice consistency, work. mate. Sharpen up. <laughs> okay, John, uh, just questions and answers. Well, I just got an email through from Scott. Coach Skip Slade, bone crusher, and he just said, well, it happened. In spite of John and many of our displeasure with Ironman offering 40 slots to random people who entered their races, one of my athletes got a slot. I can tell you that the excitement is off the scale, not only as this person, but on her social network. This is exactly what Ironman probably want to get from this excitement, broader interest, more early entries into races, publicity, and maybe a way to bring Kona back into a hand and handful of randoms, perhaps back-of-pack athlete triathletes. Yes, I still think 50 pro slots for women is a no-brainer. I suppose giving them a few opportunities to for those who pretty much have no chance to qualify by winning their age group helps the rest of us have a little bit more perspective on the race in Kona. For my athlete and her circle of friends, this is huge, exciting, and a bit daunting. I know she will embrace the experience and do her best to continue to represent what is good in triathlon. So... What I say to this is you play by the rules and well done for getting the slot. I think it's awesome, but... Still don't like it, do you? No, I'm, I'm happy for there to be a lottery system like this as such for, for a certain amount of slots. What really gets on my nerves is when they just start throwing extra slots at random races. You know, we'll chuck 10 on here if you enter in the next week or yep. this is a 16th anniversary for this race, so we'll put 16 slots there. That's what sort of gets gets me um, wound up. What anniversaries are you happy with? 25? 25. 25 years is pretty 10, good 25. run for a race. Yeah, 10's not enough. 25, that's it. 25-50. 50, yeah. Kona no, will be the first 50. Kona's 40-something now, isn't it? 40 this year, I think. Yeah, there you go. There you go. That's Maybe why they gave away 40 slots. Yeah. There you go. So so you like this, but it actually contradicts what you just said. Because they gave away 40 slots for 40 years of Kona. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm okay with some slots. I'm just not okay with them slapping them willy-nilly. <laughs> Don't stop slapping the willy is what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, John Sponsors. Extreme Endurance. Um, your lactic buffer and... Uh, Fantastic fuel source. Keeps you healthy with the immune boost. I've got it all. Check it out. Got it all. And we've also got a patron. Let's name a couple. Adrian Projectile Berry. We've got Mark Magnum Royden. And Chris Jetstream Doherty. He was over on our camp last year in Kona. Oh, not in Kona. In, uh, yeah, he yeah, was a lovely man. Jetstream. When you think about them, they're all kind of projectile, magnum. Mm. They're going places fast. Oh, man. They don't muck around. Yeah. <laughs> 
Jombo, what you guys? How'd the race go? So we had the New Zealand champs. It was uh, not controversy. Oh, back it up. Leading into the race, you know. Wait, so it was Sunday? Sunday. I think I've got everything under control. Was it a hot day? Uh, yeah, it was pretty pretty toasty on yep. the run. But I'm thinking, you know, I'm pretty good in terms of having contingencies and communicating with the athletes, trying to make sure that everybody's expectations are in the right place. Got to Wednesday in race week, and somebody had said to me the weekend, um, oh, geez, the water was 22 degrees the other day. And I was like, oh, that's just bullshit. <laughs> that's not true. And uh, and wait, 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 what's the cutoff for wetsuits? 22 degrees. Oh, no. And, I, I, and, and so I went and looked on, I think it was on Tuesday or Wednesday, I went, holy crap. And this is something that never even crossed my mind in the history of triathlon in South Island of New Zealand, especially in Christchurch, it just doesn't. It's not even worth considering. What would it You're normally never be? Never going to have a when I'm wet at swim. Normally, eighteen, seventeen to nineteen. I would yeah. say at this time of the season. Earlier on, it's probably a bit colder. Didn't even cross my mind. Did not give it one thought. <laughs> Got to Wednesday, checked out the temperature, and went, "Ah, oh, crap." <laughs> This might be a non-wetsuit swim. And luckily, my, the race is bound under Triathlon New Zealand rules. So whilst I hadn't specifically stated it, I it's had the said rules. that this is run under Triathlon New Zealand rules. So that was my sort of backstop. Um, this, then I'm monitoring, start communicating with the athletes, giving them daily updates on the temperature, just looking at it going, saying it happening. Because it, no, it didn't get cold for the rest no, of the week, did it? it did not. Get, the temperature did not get below 22 degrees because there's a, a boy out in the bay, or several, several boys out there, that the port company managed, and they had thermometers in them, and I thought, oh, I bet they're right by the surface. So I went and checked it out myself, took the old pool thermometer out, and I put it like, I stood on it, so it would have been nearly two metres down below the water, or maybe a metre, metre and a half, thinking, oh, I'll get a cold spot down there. <laughs> Didn't happen. <laughs> I've got to find this one cold spot. <laughs> Didn't happen. I was going, there's no way this is going to get under 22. <laughs> Days leading into the race were just hotter, and it was getting up to nearly... So are you communicating this to people at this stage? Yeah, yeah, I'm saying, be ready. And people are going, oh, you're just saying that. Ian Wood, who was texting me before, said, uh, I just don't need to worry about a swim skin. It's not going to be a non-wetsuit. And I said, mate, it's probably, it's highly unlikely. It was going from, the percentage was going up and up and up <laughs> every day. And then miraculously, on race day, and there was no fudging, because I got up at 3 o'clock in the morning, and the first thing I did was check the temperature, and it was like 21.7 I'm thinking that's the first time all week that it's been under 22. And so wow, the technical 20... officials have to go out and measure it. And so this is before the race. We were still saying, you know, we don't make a decision until an hour before, but we were communicating it. And they went out and checked it, and they have to take three measurements, and that they are bound by the lowest measurement of the three. And they got one measurement that came in, I think it was 21.7. Oh. And so went up there and made the announcement, and it was like, woohoo! <laughs> um, but having said that, my only concern was the back of the pack athletes that were going to mean they were going to be out there for bloody ages. You know, it's going to add on five to ten minutes for them in terms of the swim and just right. the safety because it's slower and it's less safe. Oh, do you mean if they didn't have the wetsuit? Yeah, didn't okay, have the yeah, wetsuit. Yeah. So, and then and most of the athletes came out of the swim said they would have actually rathered a non-wetsuit swim because it was so hot they really started overcooking in the swim. So that was interesting, but the race itself was awesome, um, really perfect weather, well, a bit hot weather conditions, but just old school hills, hills and more hills on the run, on the bike, same on the run, and uh, it went well. Is it um, a good race? What happened in the race? Yeah, so we had a guy from Nelson Hayden Swans take it out. Uh, Go Hayden. Uh, it's 2024. Girls race was really close. We had two Laura's 
battling it out. So we had local Laura Wood finish second and a girl, Laura Armstrong, came over from Australia and uh, took it out. So it was good, close racing, lots of sprint finishes and things like that. And really um, just old school racing. It was good to see. Oh, nice work. So back to normal now. Amazing how much better you sleep when you have <laughs> five million things running through you. I don't get stressed. It's just so, and you much, busy, going, so much going on. But it's good times. So what next? Sea to Sky Challenge on March the 18th. Oh, that'd be fun. Mm. That'd be fun. Bevan, what's happened in your week? Um, well, I, I was much less busier than yours, I tell you. Beautiful mm-hmm. night on Saturday night. We went to a friend's house, mm-hmm. had a barbie, mm-hmm. and uh, it was a stunning night. Sat outside all night, t-shirt mm-hmm. only. I need a singlet on. Nice. It's all like 11.30. Mm-hmm. Pretty with that. Um, John, what else has been happening? I've got to give a little shout out to a couple of listeners who were incredible helpers. Sean O the Porno Barnes. Oh, he's a good man. And uh, Dave, Dr. Feelgood, Dwan. Um, What's he doing? Is he racing? No, he, he wasn't, but he certainly stepped up. Those two fellas uh, helped out hugely, amongst lots of other people. But I know they're listeners and they were legends. Uh, le- well, legendary listeners, that's what we have. What we have. Uh, John, well, I don't know if I have any gossip for you. Okay. Uh, we'll go off to Auckland this weekend. Mm-hmm. Going to Auckland to do Body Attack 100. Mm-hmm. And uh, my career in that part of my life is pretty much over now, John. Mm-hmm. I always thought to myself, in that career, as me as an aerobics instructor, mm-hmm. uh, Body Attack 100 was kind of my goal. You know, and I'm a bit old in this world now, John. Mm-hmm. You know, in my world, I'm an old, old man. Mm-hmm. And you definitely look it nowadays, too, because they get kids who are like 22. Those grey hairs of yours. I'm right? not actually grey. Uh, yeah. Look, I'm not. I don't have greys. I don't have greys, which is quite phenomenal, really, because most men my age, like yourself, do. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, so it's going to be cool because it's more I'm going to go teach an awesome class of a couple, well, maybe a thousand people or something, but um, it'll be more cool because I get to hang out with my crew for one last time. That's it, is it? Pretty much. Mm-hmm. You know, like you might, you know, it's the last time the the crew that I came up with mm-hmm. will be together in one place at one time. So it'll be, it'll be a bit of a special weekend in some ways. Um, and then come back and retire. <laughs> you'll, be, you'll be moving on to like body sculpt or whatever. No, not body. What's it called? What's the yoga one called? Body balance. Body balance. You'll well, be doing John, body balance the, the, soon. I'd love to, but my flexibility, <laughs> I can't even do the hip mobility stuff. Yeah. What's your hips flexibility like? Could be better. Yeah, mine could be a lot better. So I've got that coming up. And then, uh, oh, do you know what I'm doing next week, John? Tell us. For my wedding. My wife. You married again? Yep. Okay. Well, it's been almost been a, a year now. The eleventh of. Mm-hmm. Is it eleventh? I'm pretty sure it's eleventh. Right. Um, we what got given from our runners. Diary, so you get a reminder. Trust me. Maybe I should put. That's a That's good right. tip, John. I get a reminder, and it, I've got like a week reminder, and a day reminder, and then a day, uh, one day reminder, and then a day reminder. Really? Do you? Yes. Uh, and what do you do on the day? Uh, nothing major. <laughs> just don't forget. But just don't forget. It. <laughs> it's a good point because my dad forgot my mum's birthday when I was like four. Yes. And mum seems to remember that every year. Yeah. <laughs> remember that one time? But we're going, so for my wedding present, um, our wedding present, not mine, um, our runners gave us a night at the Pure Pod. Right. You do those? No, I have not. Oh, so the Pure Pod is basically you're in the middle of the nowhere. Basically, I'm going to show you a picture. Tell me about something else for a second, John. Just checking on my wedding anniversary, make sure I remember the right day. So yes. Pure Pod is it's basically like a place you go stay in, but it's all. It's like a glass house. Oh, yep, yep, yep. Have you seen them? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this one. There's one there. And you're in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we're going to go do that next week. Nice. Let's in the Pure Pod in Kaikoura. Cool. Yeah, so I'm looking forward to that. And other than that, John, not much. Life's yeah, just so. ticking over. 
Um, I have got our next Legends of Triathlon lined up, as I promised. So that Ooh. will be coming up uh, we'll either do it next week or the week after. Okay, well, let's wrap it up, John. Iron Race. I'm Endo. Train hard. Train smart. Kick hard.